Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the ninth chapter, verses 43 through 45. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. May the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding and truly bring it alive for us this morning. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, what a contrast we have all through this segment of your word, the Incredible glory that we just saw occur on top of this mountain, the apostasy that is occurring on the bottom, and then the idea that you, as the incarnate God, would submit yourself to a horrific and torturous death, that you would shoulder the sins of those who trust in you, those you came to save. And that you would pay for those sins. What an amazing, uh, literally incomprehensible um, uh, feat that is or event that is. And it helps us to understand your, your nature. And that's what we would like to know more of this morning. We would like to know more about you. We would like to be closer to you. We would like to understand you better. And so we ask your spirit to be here in our midst to reveal to us. As deeply as you desire. And we know that you're the one who conceals and reveals. But we ask that you would reveal to us as much as you desire that we know of the risen Christ as we just sang. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, those of you who have been here know that over the past three weeks, we have considered one of the most stunning, beautiful scenes in literally all of the Gospels and perhaps in all of redemptive history, and that has been the transfiguration of Jesus on the top of that mountain with Moses and Elijah there to ground the event in redemptive history. We, we've, we've tried to um, to uh, describe it, uh, not not very well, but as best as we can with words. We've talked about things like his refulgent Shekinah, his his uh, a resplendent glory. What we're actually seeing as God sort of peels back the humanity of Christ to reveal his divinity, to show us who he really is. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. In him, all the fullness of the deity is pleased to dwell. He's the Logos who became flesh and walked amongst us. Uh, we, we got to see a little bit of a glimpse of that as far as what, that, uh, what, what your actual glory or what his actual glory actually is. And, and Luke has been revealing this to us actually through his entire gospel from the beautiful nativity story all the way forward. 
But we have also seen that the disciples are struggling with that knowledge. They're, they're trying to quantify it in, in their minds to get their mind around it. And, and, and literally from the time of that miraculous catch to the calming of the wind and the waves. Uh, and then on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and all of the, the blunders that Peter has made. They, they've been trying to understand how it is possible that God becomes man and then suffers at the hands of men. How is it possible? And we read the, some of these passages early from Isaiah. How is it possible, Isaiah says, uh, and, re- and reveals the suffering that Jesus is going to go through? I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him, esteemed him not. Is it possible That that's the same person that Brother Freddie read us earlier from that passage of the same author when he wrote. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. How is it possible that we can use a word like majesty and then words like suffering servant in the same sentence about the same person at the same time? And yet, brothers and sisters, that's the nature of our Lord. And and, and what I'm hoping that I can do this morning is to portray to you that not only is that the nature of our Lord, but that's an essential nature. That's a necessary nature for us to know. If if we're going to know the true biblical Jesus, then we must know a Jesus who is the divine incarnate son of God, the Logos who became flesh. Who set aside his glory, not that he became less glorious, but that he added subtraction through addition. He added the attributes of humanity and came and walked in our midst. How is it possible that that same glorious God that we just saw on the Mount of of Transfiguration would go to the cross and, and die a horrible, wretched death, taking our sins upon him and suffering the wrath of God in our place? How is that possible how can we get our minds around such an amazing thing well for 2,000 years false teachers have been trying to do just that trying to diminish him trying to separate him trying to make him a creature trying to, to 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 present us with a different Jesus and probably I know that probably every preacher says this in every time period, but I I can't imagine a time where more apostasies and heresies are concerning the person of Jesus Christ could possibly be out there. So therefore, I think it's very fitting on this morning where we're going to take communion. That we delve into these natures, these dual nature of Jesus, that he is God, 
but he's also the suffering servant. He's the majestic suffering servant, if you will. Now, uh, as I always say this, I think I say it every week, that we have so much context, I can't possibly do it justice, and so therefore I'm not even going to try. Let me just see if I can bring a couple of things out, that, that these themes that Luke has been bringing to our attention. First of all, as you know, if you've been here, he's been hammering us over and over and over again that Jesus is the divine son of God and the nativity story and the magnificent miracles that he worked and the declaration of Peter uh, back in Caesarea Philippi articulating that for the rest of the apostles. What we saw on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, the great miracle that he just worked by casting out the demon over and over again, Luke is affirming for us that Jesus is indeed the incarnate God in the flesh. But by the same token, he has just begun in this part, this is twice, this is the second time in a week, uh, as far as the narrative is concerned, that Luke has been telling us, as Jesus tells his disciples, that God in the flesh must die at the hands of mortal men. And, and, and that has become so confusing. That, that is difficult for us to comprehend. And so we're going to delve into that a little bit more this morning as we see that second statement that he is going to be delivered over to the hands of men. Then one last thing as far as context is concerned. Uh, we, last week, if you were here, we, we, we read the passage just before this. When Jesus on his way down from that Mount of Transfiguration where we saw his glory, he descends the mountain right into a, a sort of a cesspool of apostasy, wickedness, evil, unbelief, uh, contention. Uh, sort of a representative of, of the incarnation itself and the humiliation that Jesus went through to come here to seek and save the, the lost. But when he came down, he found out that his disciples were unable to cast out this particularly tenacious demon out of a boy that had been brought to them. And so Jesus, after rebuking his disciples in a pretty severe way, you faithless and um, a, a corrupted, uh, a twisted generation. How how long am I going to be stuck with you before I can be done with you? I mean, that was a very strong rebuke that Jesus gave. But then he cast the demon out. And, and, and when we pick up our text for this morning, that's the most immediate event. That's what everyone is going to be astonished at. So with that said, let's jump into the 43rd verse. We're just going to read the first part of it. You probably notice in your Bibles that that's included, or in most Bibles, it's included in the paragraph that goes before this. I think most uh, scholars believe that the verse division here was poorly done. But I, I don't necessarily think so. I think it actually goes well with this uh, short statement of Jesus because it brings to mind the majesty of God, the majesty of Christ that is being seen here, even though it's not being recognized. So look at that. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, there's a couple of words I want to see there. Obviously, they're astonished because they've just seen Jesus cast out this demon that their disciples could not. The manifestation of the power of God. 
But there's two words that I want to bring out of that sentence. First of all, the word astonished. Uh, that's a strong word. It, it means to be astonished out of one's mind. It, it literally. It means to be absolutely blown away. To be stupefied, dumbfounded because of what you have just seen. And so they have just seen an amazing miracle. And the people are simply out of their minds as far as their astonishment over that miracle. And then there's that word majesty. And, and, and majesty is a word just as in, in its state, is, it means a quality or state of being foremost in grandeur or esteem. And I think in the context in which we are seeing it, and if you remember last week, we talked about the preeminence of Christ in all things. Well, he is preeminent in greatness as well. He's preeminent in majesty. And, and they're appraising God for his majesty. Now, you may look at that and say, well, that's a good thing. That's exactly what we actually want people to do. We want them to be recognizing the power of God when they see it. But there's also a negative that's wrapped or sort of inserted in the middle of that positive. Yes, it's a wonderful thing to glorify God when you see such a work done. But the problem is, is they're not making the association with Jesus. They're not making the association of the one who cast the demon out. They're not seeing that Jesus is not just another man, not just another prophet, like Elijah, for instance, or Elisha. Elijah, when he brought down the fire of God from heaven on the top of Mount Carmel, he called the power of God. It was external to him. Now, he wielded amazing power because God gave it to him, but it was something that was not inherent in him. Like the refulgent Shekinah of Christ, it emanated from him. They're not seeing that in Jesus. They're seeing the power of God and they're saying, wonder, we're amazed, we're, we're, we're astonished at the majesty of God. But they have God in the flesh right in front of them and they're not seeing it. And this is a huge um, uh, mistake. In other words, MacArthur points out that they, they, they realize the power of God that is there and that's a good thing. But they don't comprehend that the power of God is not external to Jesus. That he's not just another prophet calling down fire from heaven. But he is indeed God himself. He has the power of God not because he wields it but because he is God. And so therefore they, they see with their eyes. But they're not understanding with their heart. In, 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 in other words, they have knowledge. They have knowledge that, that, that they have just seen something amazing. But they don't have any belief. You see, that knowledge never makes the transition from just pure knowledge to belief. And that brings up a really important principle, brothers and sisters, about faith, about saving faith. Saving faith is not just cerebral. It's not just something that is in the mind. It is not just something that you think about. Now, it, it, it includes the mind. I mean, we have to grasp Jesus and understand salvation and understand the need for repentance and our own sinfulness. Well, that is something we grasp in the mind. But it has to make the transition from the mind to the heart. It has to be planted in that heart that is, is going to be the good soil, going back to that parable of the sower and the soils, that it, it, it takes root in that heart and there's an understanding that transcends mere cerebral knowledge so it needs to be more than knowledge 
Saving faith needs to be more than just a sort of a nominal or, or a temporary or a shallow kind of a faith, a, a belief in sometime. It's an all in, all out faith in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why the person of Jesus Christ and who that person actually is, is so important because that's where salvation can be found. And I know this sounds strange, but saving faith is not just faith in God. Now, it's important to believe in God. That, that, that's very significant. But saving faith is, is more than just believing in God. So let me, let, me, let me give you an absolutely vital principle here. Christianity is fundamentally and necessarily Trinitarian in nature. Let me repeat that. That is hugely significant. That Christianity is fundamentally and necessarily Trinitarian, meaning that God in one being has manifested himself, not just manifested, but he actually is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the, the triune God, three persons in one being. That's the very nature of Christianity. So therefore, these people are saying they're astonished at the majesty of God, but it's not just the majesty of God that they need to see, it is the majesty of Christ, not in the way that he wields the power of God, but the majesty of Christ as God. That is an absolutely essential part of what it means to be Christian. Brothers and sisters, saving faith is the belief in that Jesus, the Jesus who is God in the flesh, who came and walked amongst us. The Jesus who went to the cross and died. The Jesus who went to the grave, but the grave couldn't hold him. Resurrected the supernatural miracle working Jesus who ascended to the Father. And even now is King of kings and Lord of lords at his right hand. And will come again with the same kind of glory that we saw on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. That is the Jesus that we must believe in. Because that's the only Jesus, brothers and sisters, quite frankly, that is going to save you. Um, as I said, it's wonderful to believe in God. <laughs> you remember what James says, right, about that? He says, so you believe in one God, that's really good, proud of you, but so do the demons, and they tremble at that knowledge. In fact, it's kind of interesting here. There's a little bit of an irony going on in Luke because of all the people, except for Peter's profession at Caesarea Philippi, of all the people who have seen Jesus, the ones who have most clearly articulated who he is have been the demons. You remember back at the synagogue in Capernaum when Jesus confronted a man who was demon-possessed and they had that conversation. And the demon said to him, Ha! What have I to do with you? Or what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Later when he was over there in Gesserine and he saw that, that demon-possessed man in the, in, in the tombs and he came out and said that my name is Legion because there's many of us, he cried out to Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So the demons understand, in fact, going back to this scene at the bottom of the mountain, the demon who possessed that boy knows without any 
any question that Jesus is indeed the, the divine son of God because he has just felt the brunt of his power. So the demon who just got cast out knows more about who Jesus is than the crowd who saw him cast out because they're giving glory to God, but they're not giving glory to Jesus. And that's an, a, a, a huge Difficult uh, problem because only Jesus can save you. You know, last week we read this passage from Colossians. And, you know, I could probably read it every week. It is so beautiful because it really does express for us exactly the nature of the Lord that we worship. Paul says this to the Colossians. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. How is it possible that the crowd, after seeing so many clear examples of Jesus' divine power, that they still cannot give him the glory? They still miss the mark. They're so close, but close isn't close enough. That's why knowing who Jesus is is so hugely significant. Now, brothers and sisters, whether or not the crowd comes to this realization or not, we as the readers of this gospel, we know beyond a shadow of doubt because Luke has made it clear to us that Jesus is indeed divine. It is, and, 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 and when we talk about the nature of Jesus, it is not necessary that you understand the depths of the mysteries concerning him. In fact, I really believe, brothers and sisters, that we will never plumb the depths of Jesus. We will never understand him completely. But it is essential that we believe and we trust in the real Jesus for salvation. Because a watered-down Jesus cannot possibly save you. In other words, if your Jesus is just a teacher, if he's just a great ethical um, moralist, if you will, if he is simply a prophet who wielded the power of God, then chances are your Jesus won't save you because he's not God in the flesh. And, and I'm not saying you won't. I'm not saying you, you, you have to completely understand the Christology around Jesus because I was saved well before I understood the Christology. Okay, I, I, I didn't know who Jesus was, and but my, my heart was changed. But eventually what is going to happen is you are going to come face to face with the risen Lord, the true Jesus Christ. And that is so important, brothers and sisters, because false teachers abound. False teachers, as we will see uh, a little bit later on, that are teaching you about a different Jesus and a Jesus who ultimately is not going to be able to save you. And so that's the first thing that we really want to make sure that we see. That that Jesus is presented to us as the divine, glorious Son of God, God incarnate in the flesh. Well then, with that in mind, Jesus goes on, or Luke goes on to tell us about the scene, 
and tells us something absolutely amazing that Jesus said. Let's go back to the text and, and read the rest of that 43rd verse. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing. Okay, so this is going to happen while the people are astonished. Why they are just marveling and, they, and they're all talking about praise God, majesty of God, amazing. God has just done this wonderful thing. And they're not figuring out that it is Jesus who actually wields the power from within because he is God incarnate. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Wow, what a statement that is in the context. What, how dramatic. Jesus takes the opportunity when a large crowd of people are all excited because they have just seen this power of God wielded by this man. And they've got all kinds of ideas about what kind of Messiah he is. And Jesus takes that time to tell his disciples, wait a minute, guys. I want these words to sink into your ears. Now, that opening phrase is an idiom. It's a figure of speech. It's what we call a Hebraism because it really came out of, of the Hebrew um, um, culture uh, and language. And basically what it means is I want you to pay very close attention. The, the NIV, the, the New International Version, translates it, listen to them carefully. But it's really much more than that. The you here is emphatic, okay? And, 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 it, and, and there's the idea of not just listening and not just listening carefully, but listen to the words so that those words internalize and go into your mind, into your heart, and take root and bear fruit within you. I want you to meditate on these words. I, I want you to get it. And the fact that it's emphatic, he is telling his disciples, you must get this. This is an essential doctrine. This is not something as a sideline. You must understand that the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Even in English, you can see the play on words, can't you? Son of Man, hands of men. The, 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 the complete distinction between the majesty and the suffering servant in one sentence. Jesus says the Son of Man. Now, we've talked about the Son of Man on many occasions here. And, and you know that so many people think that Son of Man is a title that refers to Jesus' humanity. Actually, it's quite the opposite. It really refers to his divinity. It refers to Jesus in uh, a much more cosmic sense, uh, in, in, in his place in redemptive history, um, as the son of God who brought the kingdom of God to earth, as the one who came to fulfill and consummate the law and the prophets, to, to bring the covenants of God to their great conclusion. He is the one, yes, who is going to go to the cross, but he is the one who will be bodily, supernaturally resurrected, ascended to God, and, and be coronated as King of kings and Lord of lords and will one day come again. All of that is wrapped up in the idea of Son of Man. So it is incomprehensible that that Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men. I mean, that, that is virtually incomprehensible to the, to the disciples, and we need to kind of explain it just a, a, a wee bit. Now, the word deliver 
is, is it, well, it's a word that can actually be used in two different ways. It can be used positively if you deliver someone to someone in the sense of a positive delivery, well, you entrust them. If I take my son, if I had a son, if I took him to camp for the summer and I delivered him to the counselors of the camp for the summertime, well, I've entrusted him into their care. Well, that's not the way it's used here. It's used in the negative sense. And when it is used in the negative sense, it, it means to betray someone. It means to sell them out, to throw them under the bus, to give colloquial meanings to it. It means to give them up, to turn someone over to someone who will ultimately do them harm. And so that's what Jesus is saying, that the Son of Man incomprehensibly is going to be delivered over to mortal men who are going to do him harm. How, how is that even possible? Well, the question arises in kind of answer to that. Well, who's going to do the delivering? Who's the deliverer here? Who's going to give Jesus up or give Jesus over to betray him? Well, all we have to do is go into the passion story. And we'll find out that almost everyone who had anything to do with it delivered Jesus over. Um, Judas, for instance, when he was negotiating with the Sanhedrin, he said this, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And that's exactly what he did. He delivered him over to them. Well, the Sanhedrin turns right around and delivers him over to Pilate. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Well, Pilate, the governor, interviewed him, found no fault in him, tried to let him go, but the people wouldn't do it, so he delivered Jesus over too. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. So we see that virtually everyone involved with the trial and the passion of Jesus delivered him over until he ultimately stayed at the cross. But are those humans the ultimate deliverers. Are they the one who delivered Jesus up to the cross? And by the way, before we leave the human beings that delivered Jesus over to the cross, don't, don't absolve yourself if you're a follower of his and a believer in his because they, they may have delivered him over, but you're the reason he was there. So was I. He's the, you're the reason that he stayed there. But nonetheless, Isaiah tells us this, and once again, going back to what we just read, all we like sheep have gone astray. A man has strayed in his own way, and the Lord gave him over to our sins. Okay? Paul said this to the Romans, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? To the Ephesians on several occasions, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself over. Well, there, it's not just God who's doing the delivering over, it's Jesus himself. Later on, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, delivered himself over. And of course, we know from Peter's great Pentecost sermon, different word, but the same idea he tells us this Jesus, or he was telling the people there, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So there is no doubt who did the ultimate delivering here. 
It was God the Father who delivered him to the cross. And this is precisely where we're going to start running into trouble with the false teachers of today. But let's back up and and just look at another aspect of this text that's important. Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered. Don't miss that. This is the second time that Jesus has informed his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem and and he's going to be crucified. He hasn't told them that yet, just that I'm going to be killed. Well, the first time that he said this was back in the 22nd verse. And, And here's the way he put it. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees and the and the chief priests and, and be killed and then resurrected. It's a more complete statement of this. But notice that it is put in the terms of a necessity. The, the Son of Man must do this. This is the only path to salvation for a, a fallen sinner. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, if there's any other way that we can do this, then let this cup pass from me. And the father didn't let the cup pass from him because there was no other way. The only way is through Jesus Christ and the only way is through the cross. Brothers and sisters, another principle arises here that is absolutely essential. It's as important as the fact that we are Trinitarian in nature. But the second principle that we want to take is that the core of the gospel and therefore God's providential plan of redemption passes directly through the cross. Let me repeat that. That the core of the gospel and therefore the plan of redemption, and therefore the very heart of Christianity passes directly through the cross. Without the cross, there, there is no salvation. And, and, and what I mean by that, when I talk about the cross in that way, I'm not just talking about his death on the cross. I am talking about the fact that when Jesus went to the cross and he hung on that cross through three hours of holy darkness, he became the substitutionary sacrificial uh, atonement for sins. And that our sins, those who believe in him, were placed upon him, imputed to him in some way, and God poured his wrath down upon those sins, and those sins were atoned for, they were paid for. Now, brothers and sisters, if, if you go back into history and you start looking at, at, at the, the providence of the cross and the fact of the essential nature of the cross and the fact that we can't do without the cross, you recognize that from the very beginning, there has been the necessity of some kind of a sacrifice to atone for the sins of people. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve first fell, Remember, God sacrificed an animal to cover their nakedness, their shame, their sinfulness. And from that point on, all the way through the history of humanity, there has been a requirement. Hebrews says that without the spilling of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so when Moses went on the mountain and God gave him the law and he came down, that law which condemns, Paul tells us, it condemns each one of us. None of us can hold up to that law. But in his mercy and his grace, he gave us a sacrificial system so that through the blood of bulls and goats and, and, and sheep and doves and all kinds of different things, our sins could be atoned for. 
We're learning something on Wednesday night in the study of Stephen the Martyr's great sermon. He's trying to make it clear to the Sanhedrin at that time that if you're honest with yourself, you will realize that the blood of bulls and goats can't forgive sins. There's something more. It's pointing us towards something. It's pointing us to a greater sacrifice. A sacrifice that actually will propitiate, expiate, atone for the sins of humanity. And that, of course, was Jesus Christ. And that's what happens when Jesus went to the cross. He atoned for our sins as a substitutionary, sacrificial, you can turn those words either way you want to as I I tend to do. You can, as, as a substitutional, sacrificial atonement. And, and, and again, if, if, if you're not going to believe that, you're just going to have to ignore most of Scripture. Now, the reason I'm making this big point about this, and the reason is I almost feel silly saying this, but th- there's a movement within evangelical Christianity that that maintains and teaches that Jesus did not go to the cross as a sacrificial substitutionary atonement. And in fact, that's barbaric, and that belongs to another age. And they actually, in very emotionally charged language, they create an environment of sentimentality, and they wax eloquent about the fact that this would make God a monster. And in fact, they use the term that it turns God into a child abuser. Well, if, if, if that wasn't gaining such traction, if there weren't so many ears being tickled with that false doctrine, it would be downright comical. But as it is, it's downright tragic. Because you see, they, they, they cater to an audience of people who are biblically illiterate, but yet they go to church. They've never cracked the Bible. They've never opened it themselves. They, 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 they don't read it and study it because if you would read and study the Bible, there's no way that you could honestly say that God is a, is, is, is a child abuser. That's juvenile and theologically absurd. It's also blasphemous because they're saying God is a, is a, is a child abuser for doing something that is written in his book from one end to the other. Jesus himself says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. What does that mean? If he did not go to the cross to buy back the righteousness of those that he came to save? What does it mean that he gave himself his life as a ransom for many? Going all the way back to the Old Testament, Leviticus tells us this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Is the blood. And as I said from Hebrews, without the spilling of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Paul says in Acts, as he says goodbye to the elders of Ephesus, he says, pay very careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he God obtained with his own blood. What on earth does that mean? If there is no 
sacrificial substitutionary atonement. He says in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Wait a minute. Are we talking about God hanging on a tree being cursed? How does God get cursed when he's perfect within himself? If he's not perfect, he's not God. What happens for God to become cursed on a tree? He's shouldering the sins of those he came to save so that he could pay the penalty for those sins. And, 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 and what do you do with the book of Hebrews? I mean, seriously, what do you do with that book if you're trying to make the point that Jesus did not die as a sacrificial substitutionary atonement? Let me just read you some of the verses. He has no need, and uh, talking of Jesus, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. But when Christ had offered for, uh, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now I ask you, how could anyone sway a massive number of people into believing that it, it is horrendous and barbaric for God to send his own son to the cross and get away with it when it is that clear in Scripture? In fact, even at the end of it, the book of Revelation. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, talking to the Lamb. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So uh, hopefully I've made my point. I can go on. I, I mean, that's just a smattering of what Scripture says from one end to the other. That this crucial, important doctrine that we must understand and accept is that Jesus Christ went to the cross. He hung on that cross with my sins upon him. He paid for those sins through the by accepting the wrath of God. And then he was resurrected from the grave just so that we would know that we didn't make this up. There's no substitutionary atonement, my dear brothers and sisters. We are still lost in our sins. If there is no substitutionary atonement, then we all will face the wrath of God for the sins that we committed. If there was no sacrificial substitutionary atonement, then why did Jesus go to the cross? What was the whole purpose of the cross in the first place? Why on earth did God send his son? Well, they, they, they like to say it's to show us the love of God. You know, the, the, the deep, deep love of God that Jesus suffered on our account. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure they have better arguments than the way I interpret that because millions upon millions of people were crucified on the crosses in those days, suffered the same physical torture that Jesus suffered. Does that mean that they all showed us the love of God too? Peter said, I don't want to be in tradition anyway. He says, I don't want to be sacrificed in the same way that my Lord was. So crucify me upside down. That was the worst way to be crucified. Does that mean Peter loves us more than Jesus? I mean, great. I know that the cross is the greatest expression of Christ's love. But if that's all there is, then we're still in our sins. We need the cross, brothers and sisters. So therefore, we have two absolutely essential doctrines right here in one place. That the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The majesty and the suffering servant 
and the same concept. Well, if you have trouble understanding that, don't feel bad. Because the disciples didn't get it either. Let's go back and finish this up. But they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So there's a continuation of the misunderstanding of the disciples. And you ask yourself, so what what don't they understand about this? I mean, that sounds pretty straightforward to me. Well, I I think one of the reasons that they don't understand that we've already talked about. um, We've talked about the fact that the the disciples are seeing things through the prism of their own culture. If you remember going back to Caesarea Philippi, actually uh, Luke doesn't carry this, but Matthew does. When, When Jesus says this to the first time to his disciples and Peter says, there is no way you're going to the cross, not on our watch. And Jesus, of course, said... Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Uh, Because you're not thinking of the things of God. You're thinking of the things of man. You're trying to take me and the revelation I am giving you about me. And you're trying to cram it into your cultural perspective. You're trying to make me the Messiah that you expect me to be. Same thing happened on top of the Mount of of Transfiguration. When Peter saw that, he said, whoa, the kingdom of heaven is upon us. I'm going to build tabernacles. We're going to hold on to this. Same thing was going on down at the base of the mountain because they couldn't throw the demon out. And in each one of those cases, brothers and sisters, I am convinced that the reason was is because they're trying to fit Jesus into their culture. They're trying to fit Jesus into their presuppositions of who he should be as the Messiah. And brothers and sisters, I think one of the reasons that Luke is bringing this out is so that we won't do the same thing, although we do constantly. This is one of the greatest problems within the evangelical church. We keep trying to cram Jesus into the confines of our own understanding, our own culture. And he says, stop that. Just listen to the reservation. What did I say? Reservation. The revelation. Listen to the revelation. Let the words sink into your ears. Let them become something that you comprehend. Well, I think there's another reason for that. It's not just that's the only thing. And obviously Luke says that here. He says that um, it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. So in some way, the truth, even though Jesus is articulating it pretty clearly, the truth is not getting through to the disciples. So that kind of brings up a question, doesn't it? Who's the concealer? We talked about who's the who's the deliverer earlier. Well, who's the concealer? Who's the one who's actually concealing the truth from these disciples and why? Well, some people, I'm not going to go into all the different theories of why. Some people say it's the devil. And I, the devil, I mean, he just threw the devil out. He just threw a demon out. You know, granted, the devil has a power over the culture and, and, and the, 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 the ability to try to fit Jesus into the culture could have a lot to do with him. But I, I don't see the devil really having much to do with it here. I, I, I think what we talked about just a few minutes ago is paramount here. The fact that the disciples are trying they have these presuppositions of who Jesus is. In fact, Calvin is the one who really kind of keys on this. He says the most brilliant revelation can be blinded by presuppositions. Brothers and sisters, that, that's an important statement. 
We need to make sure that when we go to Scripture, we let Scripture speak to us and we don't speak to it. We don't tell it what we want it to say. We let Scripture tell us what, we, what it wants to tell us about Jesus because then we're going to see the real Jesus and not a Jesus after our own manufacture. And so therefore, that's probably one of the great reasons. But I don't even think it's the primary reason. I mean, they, they, their, their understanding is clouded by their presuppositions, but this talks about someone actually concealing it from them. So I, I believe that the number one concealer here is God. God is the one who is, who, who is blocking their perception to a degree. And we would have to ask ourselves, why? Why would God do this? Why would God conceal the truth from these apostles who are going to be so important? Well, I think one of the reasons we've already kind of discussed when we talked about why the messianic secret, because the gospel's not finished yet. I mean, it's not going to make an awful lot of sense until after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, to where they know that this was the plan of God, and probably after the ascension and Pentecost itself, where the Holy Spirit comes on and explains all of this. So therefore, it's not time. It's not God's timing. But I think there's another reason. I think it has to do with the compassion of Christ for his apostles. I don't know about you, but we're 2,000 years after this happened. I, I, I never physically walked with Jesus. I didn't eat with him. I didn't sit down with him. I wasn't on the road with him. I didn't sleep in the open with him. I, I, I didn't have that close relationship with him. But when I think about Jesus hanging on the cross, going through that suffering with my sins upon him, paying the wrath of God for what I have done, there is a, a weight, there's a gravity. I'm not going to say it's oppressive, but there's a gravity that goes with that. I, I mean, it, it's, it's devastating sometimes for me to think that Jesus suffered that much for me. I'm happy that he did. But there's a weight that goes with it, and I think that's the reason. I don't think the disciples can, can handle that yet. I don't think that if they knew the degree to which Jesus was going to suffer... That, that they wouldn't be able to raise their heads. And, and actually, Jesus says that pretty much in John. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. One last thing that we want to pull out of the text, and that's the very end statement. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. I think you would be too. <laughs> if you think about the rebukes that Jesus has recently given to them for, you know, raising questions about this. Peter, get behind me, Satan. The rest of you are a bunch of faithless and twisted generation. I can't wait till I'm done with you. I think I'd be a little gun shy about raising some of the questions about this. But it's too bad they didn't. It would have been nice to have had the answer about this written down for us. But the Holy Spirit saw otherwise. Brothers and sisters, let me just reiterate and summarize here. The importance that, that we have as Christians in not only believing but also sharing. When we go out to share the gospel, when we tell other people about Jesus, because that is what the gospel is. When we tell them about Jesus, we, we, we must tell them about the real Jesus. And it's essential that we believe in the real Jesus. Because only the real Jesus actually saves anyone. 
He is the divine Son of God incarnate, the Logos who became flesh and walked amongst us. We saw his glory. The glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw it on top of that mountain of transfiguration. We saw it on the cross. We saw it at the resurrection. And we will see it one day in person forever and ever for an eternity. We will live and bask in the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ. That's who he is. And, and that is what is required to save us. But at the same time, to take him off the cross. To, or to say that he went there just to show us what true love is. To take away the concept of a sacrificial substitutionary atonement takes away the very heart of the gospel. And yet, brothers and sisters, there it is out there being, being plastered all over the place in books and blogs and, 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 and all kinds of things. So we might ask ourselves the question in closing, well, why do you think Luke is just hammering these apostles over and over again? They, they don't get it. They don't understand. They, they have a lack of understanding. Well, brothers and sisters, I think the reason is so that we will understand. You see, this is here to help us, to, to grow us. To, it's the means of grace whereby we have a deeper and a better understanding with Jesus. Because the better understanding we have with Jesus, the closer our walk with him is going to be. And, and the better the fruit that we are going to grow. So there are several things that we need to comprehend as far as what, the, what, what we learn from this. Number one. How essential these doctrines are. That, that without these doctrines, the very heart of Christianity is torn out. Secondly, how easy it is to be pushed off the narrow road into one ditch or the other. How easy it is to lose our focus. Thirdly, how dangerous our presuppositions about Jesus are. The way that we formulate him in our minds. The way that we logically want him to be. And if we don't like what it says in scripture. How we kind of water it down or push it to the back. We need to see the true Jesus. Because when we have presuppositions about him. All kinds of trouble happens. Fourthly that God sometimes conceals things from you. Sometimes he doesn't show you everything. And you know something, brothers and sisters, when that happens, we need to be patient. We need to allow the means of grace, our Bible reading, our Bible study, the exposition of the word, the prayer time that we spend, the communion that we will take. We need to allow God to reveal it to us because there's all kinds of trouble that happens when we go out and try to make it happen ourselves. And then fifthly and finally, I think that... Luke is preparing us for the apostasy and heresy that he knew, Jesus knew, everyone knew, would attack the church and has been doing so for 2,000 years and continues to do so today. So as I said at the beginning, how fitting it is that we would have a discussion like this about our Lord as we turn our attention to communion. Because that's what this represents. It represents the, the sacrifice that Jesus gave on our behalf. It, it represents the, the resurrection. It represents the second coming. I mean, there's so much wrapped up in this communion. But I hope that we learn one more lesson. Not necessarily in the way that the lesson was learned or, or, or presented. But that just like that crowd is 
astonished out of their mind at the majesty of God. I pray that we never lose the sense of awe, the sense of wonder, the sense of glory, the sense of beauty that our Lord went to the cross to die for us. And because of that, my sins are forgiven. And because of that, his righteousness is given to me. Because of that, I can have a relationship with his father, which I never could have before. Because of that, there's an eternity waiting for me in the glory of Christ and the Father. And so therefore, I pray that we will never lose the wonder and the one Paul talks about when he said, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, is. Obviously beyond us to completely comprehend this. But thank you that in your word you have taken such care to present, to reveal yourself to us as you really are. Help us to set aside our presuppositions. Help us to set aside the culture. Help us to turn a deaf ear to the false teachers who would have us see a different kind of Jesus. Oh, and have such rational, such charismatic Um, uh, 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 arguments. Help us to stay on the straight and narrow path, Lord. We know it's a narrow one. We know there's a ditch on both sides. We know that it's easy for the enemy to, to kick us off of that. But Lord, even as we take this time of communion, we know that you are here there's a presence, and, and, and not that you're here any more or less than you're always here, but, but, but you quicken us to that presence. There's a very real means of grace that we are about to enjoy. And I pray as part of that, Lord, you will absolutely solidify, crystallize these two great doctrines, these two great principles in our minds, that you are indeed the divine Son of God and that you came as a substitutionary sacrifice for the atonement of our sins. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.